Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Welcome, everyone, to the Always On EM podcast. This is a Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine production. Thank you so much for joining for the October 2022 episode. This is chapter 11 of our podcast. My name is Venk Bellamconda. I am an emergency physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester and serve as co-host of the show along with my friend, Dr. Alex Finch. This month is special, not only Halloween, but the American College of Emergency Physicians is having their annual scientific assembly. Unfortunately, I can't be there in person and I, I'm going to miss you all for sure. But I hope you all that are attending have a wonderful time connecting, learning, building that sense of community. And as you are talking, you are going to uncover new topics, new questions, areas that you want a deeper dive. Please let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter at alwaysonem or Instagram the same at always on em or via email at always on em at gmail.com. As always, we really appreciate it when you like, comment, or follow the show on any of the platforms that you're using. But I also want to highlight that many of you are talking to your friends and colleagues about the value you are deriving from the show, and that is really meaningful to us. We are seeing increase in our listenership, and I'm excited to say as of this recording this morning, we are having listeners in over 41 countries. That is amazing to me. And September, we achieved our highest engagement statistics that we have ever had. Hopefully, we break that every month moving forward. But your engagement, your energy really fuels Alex and I to continue this program. Speaking of, let's get to this month's program. We have a really special guest for this month's interview. Right, Alex? We do indeed. Thank you so much, Frank. So I actually had a case a few months ago that I wish had gone better and subsequently did a deep dive into accidental hypothermia. I kept coming across the same name in my literature review over and over again. His paper in the New England Journal of Medicine is a cornerstone of practice all over the world. After I read it, I had some questions about how I could take concepts from the paper and implement them into our practice and actually emailed the lead author, Dr. Doug Brown. He wrote back almost immediately with additional references and suggestions. His passion for accidental hypothermia and mountain medicine is incredible. Dr. Brown, welcome to the show. Would you share with our listeners a little bit about your journey into this area and how you developed these passions? Sure. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm uh, an emergency physician at Royal Columbian Hospital. I've been doing search and rescue since about 1996. I became a mountain rescue technician with a local team here in Vancouver, British Columbia. So we have some smaller coastal mountains and lots of fun rescues. Later, I became a physician in 2004 and started using my physician skills in combination with my search and rescue work, as well as, you know, trying to get through residency and everything else. A friend who was a kind of a mountain rescue mentor of mine invited me to go to ICAR which is the International Council of Alpine Rescue Conference in Zermatt, Switzerland. 
And so that pretty much was my dream place to go to go climbing. And so my wife and I managed to convince our program directors that it would be a really good idea that we went to a conference there. And then we tacked on a tacked on a few weeks of climbing afterwards but this <laughs> this conference was a total game changer for me i i met all of the sort of world experts in accidental hypothermia and while i was there a woman named anna Bagenholm presented her own case of accidental hypothermia she she fell in a creek and was rapidly cooled to an eventual temperature of 13.7 degrees celsius wow I'm sorry, did you say 13.7 degrees Celsius? I did, yeah. She was the world record holder for accidental hypothermia until a recent case bumped her off. Uh, Well, I'll tell you the story. So Anna is skiing with some friends. She is a orthopedic surgery resident at the time. She has a tumbling fall and breaks through this creek. And she ends up upside down in a creek still breathing air, but cold water is flowing around kind of the rest of her body. And her friends can't get her out, so they call for help. And uh, something like 50 or 60 minutes later, the helicopter arrives. She's in cardiac arrest. They start CPR, winch her into this helicopter, and then fly her like another 30 minutes or so to an ECMO center. And I was a second year emergency medicine resident. I'd been doing mountain rescue for, well, more than a decade or about a, about a decade at the time and kind of thought I knew what I was doing. And I just imagined managing this case and I would have imagined stopping so many times in her care and to have her face to face with me showing pictures of her like you know, undressed, having CPR in the back of a helicopter, her on ECMO at this uh, receiving center and things like this. It was, it was just so powerful for me. Yeah. So I left this conference sort of realizing that I knew nothing and went on this journey to try and understand the literature, understand why in Europe, if you were in hypothermic cardiac arrest, you went to an ECMO center and got rewarmed on a heart lung machine versus in North America, mostly you just passed away in the emergency department, mostly. Yeah, so it, it, it culminated in this publication that you mentioned where myself and a number of the people we met or that I met at uh, ICAR published a review of accidental hypothermia. And a couple of the things that were really game-changing from a North American perspective is that we, we basically showed that for the right patient, that the duration of CPR wasn't a strong predictor of survival. And so if you had a good story of, of being cooled, being alive while you were cooling and getting to a low core temperature and then having a hypothermic cardiac arrest, that if you were rewarmed using ECLS, that you could have a very, very good chance of a good outcome, upwards of 50, 60, 70, 80% survival rate for those well-selected patients. The fact that you didn't need to be 20 minutes from an ECMO center really changed things for us in North America. We rolled very quickly uh, into creating a provincial guideline for British Columbia, and we proposed a six-hour cutoff. Like if you were more than six hours away from an ECLS center um, of total CPR that you should rewarm locally, but if you were less than six hours, you should you should transport and just do high-quality CPR and transport. And that was a very difficult thing for people to wrap their head around. It seemed crazy to do four or five, six hours of CPR. 
and imagined that it was going to work, but we we kind of lucked into a case that happened locally in Squamish where another young woman uh, was out recreating and uh, suffered a hypothermic cardiac arrest and happened to be taken care of by some amazing people. Hi listeners, this is Venk. I'm jumping in because later in our interview with Doug, he describes this case in much more detail and it was really staggering to hear how this unfolded and his efforts to try and get this patient great care. And then later the impact on their system was much more realized. So let's jump forward to hear the details. I, I caught wind of the case at an hour and a half or, or so. It's a funny setup. So we, I'll, I'll tell both parts of the story. The, um, I was out for a run when I got a phone call from the SAR manager who told me, Hey, Doug, we've got your case. John and uh, Miles are resuscitating a woman in hypothermic cardiac arrest up in uh, Elfin Lakes. And I was like, no way. He's like, yeah, way. And I was like, can I talk to them? And he's like, no, (laughs) there's no cell service. (laughs) And I'm like, but you're pretty sure it's a hypothermic cardiac arrest? He's like, they're pretty sure. I'm like, okay, well, what are your logistics? And he's like, well... BC Ambulance is telling me to fly the patient to Squamish Hospital, which is a local little hospital. And um, and there and I've told them like, no, no, Doug Brown told me I need to transport this patient directly to an ECLS center, but they're telling me that well, no, you have a patient in cardiac arrest. The provincial protocol is that you have to go to the local hospital as quickly as you can. And I was this like, discussion sounds like you're going to get a lot of emails and follow up. <laughs> <laughs> And so I was like, okay, John, I'll work on it. You guys just imagine that you're going to be going to VGH instead. And he's like, okay, good luck. I'm like, okay, good luck. And so then I called the, uh, well, first I called the Vancouver General Hospital and confirmed that they were willing to take the patient. I was a resident at the time and knew the intensivists and stuff. And so, and they knew the work I was doing. So that was easy. Wow, you were doing all of this as a resident. You did not. You did not lead with that. So this was something you took on really early in your career, and you're a resident making this change to the entire pre-hospital system. Uh, yeah, I was a. I think I was an. That's incredible. I think I was an R four when the New England paper came out. <laughs> what? Now, what what milestone is that when you're making <laughs> systems changes at a resident That's level? That's incredible. I did not know that. Um, that is phenomenal. So anyways, so I, I talked to the uh, the right intensivist and he's like, okay, I'll talk to the cardiac surgeon. You know, we're in. And I was like, great. Okay. I'll talk to the patient transfer network and I'll talk to the eMERGE. And, and he's like, okay, I'll, I'll take care of the OR side. Because he, he was an intensivist who was also an anesthesiologist. So he, he knew everybody and he knew this, he knew the score. So then I called the transport BC ambulance transport supervisor and said, you know, there's this patient in Squamish who's in hypothermic cardiac arrest and the right thing to do is we need to transport them directly to VGH to go on uh, ECLS. And he came on board very quickly right away, especially as soon as we made the quick, he, he, wired, he wired in the quick call to VGH and VGH agreed to accept the patient. So that was good. And then the bad news was that we had lost the critical care transport helicopter. 
in BC, like in when we do search and rescue, we're, we're using these small helicopters generally that, that we usually do a short flight with. And then if we have a critically ill patient, we meet a much larger helicopter with a critical care transport team who will take over care and then fly directly to the rooftop at our at VGH, at our tertiary care center. But in this case, the critical care transport helicopter and the, t- and the crew that goes with it had been redeployed other places because they had thought that this patient wasn't going to require critical care transport. And so we were stuck with this small search and rescue helicopter, um, which, which literally only has room for, like when we, have the, when we have a patient horizontal, they take out one of the front seats. So normally the helicopter has a pilot, has a front seat passenger, and then has four seats across the back. And we take out one of the, we take out the front seat passenger seat. We take out two of the back seats and then we put the person in the stretcher anyway. So, so one, so we, the patient was flown with one paramedic on his knees doing CPR and the other one in, in the seatbelt on the phone and doing the radio communications and stuff. And so we, we flew directly from scene, but we couldn't land on the, top of the hospital because it's only a single engine helicopter and it doesn't have the safety protocol to be allowed to land in the middle of a large center uh, on a rooftop pad. So we had to fly to the airport and then road ambulance the patient to VGH, which is a 20 minute ambulance ride. So we, what? So we, we this is incredible. (laughs) So we organized that they would fly from, from Squamish directly from the scene to the uh, Vancouver airport where they'd meet a critical care ambulance crew in a, in an ambulance. And then they would drive her to VGH. And then as we were just talking about, we had to figure out a way to make sure she didn't touch down too long in the emerge. Uh, and so we agreed with the, so the emerge doc who was on was also aware of the work that had been done and all this stuff about hypothermia. And so they were on board. The compromise from the cardiac surgeon was that he wanted a blood draw in eMERGE and to know what the potassium was. So we had the iStat machine kind of ready to roll. And yeah, after she'd had four hours of CPR, she got put onto ECLS. She was um, rewarmed rather quickly, but within less than 12 hours, she was off pump. And within four days, she was um, extubated. And in under a week, she was back on the ward. So we, um, we had this case right at our crux moment for our protocol where we were like six hours and everyone's like six hours, no way. And then we had this four hour case just land in our lap and she did great. And so everybody signed off on the protocol and it's been uh, in place ever since. So it's been, yeah, just a wild journey to build the chain of survival. Because if you don't have it ready to go, it's really hard to improvise on the fly. Doug, what you described that you and your teammates were able to do is really astounding. From my vantage point, it seems like you had such a shared vision and purpose for what needs to happen for this young woman to get the best outcome that you were able to overcome a lot of momentum within the system to do things the way that they had always been done and in fact do something extremely novel and different. And you had to overcome a lot of challenges, including the helicopter and personnel issues to be able to get that done. 
If I'm reading between the lines, the actual case is also really astounding with such a prolonged downtime and uh, I'd love to hear more of those details. Can you summarize the details of the resuscitation itself as well as summarize the outcome? So it was a 24-year-old female who left a backcountry hut at 2 a.m. She became disoriented and disrobed. She was found seven and a half hours later lying in the snow with agonal respirations. She lost vital signs when the crew extracted her. They started CPR. At the two-hour mark, the ALS helicopter rescue team arrives. They defibrillated her 11 times, actually. They used up their first AED and then got a second AED because they learned the lesson that it is really hard to not shock VT. They knew from my talk that they should do 15 minutes and, you know, three rounds of medication and defibrillation and then focus on just high quality CPR and transport. But it was impossible for them to have an AED that said shock advised and to not shock it. So they actually went through two sets of batteries on two different defibrillators. They gave her four milligrams of epi. She had entitled CO2 of 10 to 20 the whole time for them. After 40 minutes of scene time with them, they were able to evacuate by small helicopter. They then had a 20-minute flight to the Vancouver airport, bypassing the local hospital, and then a 15-minute road ambulance to our ECLS center. Her temperature in the ambulance measured esophageal was 17 degrees Celsius. That was after three hours and 40 minutes of CPR. There's a little bit of a discrepancy because the temperature measured in the OR at the four-hour mark was 22 degrees Celsius. So it's not clear to me whether she rewarmed during transport, which I highly doubt, or whether just for some reason one of the temperatures is wrong. Her presenting rhythm in the OR was VF. ECMO was started at the four-hour mark. Just before ECMO, her pH was 6.98. Her CO2 was 56. Her oxygen was 72, her bicarb was 13, her K was 4.3, and her lactate was 11.3. They started her on VA ECMO. They rewarmed her very quickly. After 26 minutes, she was at 37 degrees Celsius. This is actually much quicker than we would normally recommend, but they rewarmed her quickly and it worked. She was defibrillated into normal sinus rhythm on the first attempt at 37 degrees after 27 minutes on pump. They did leave her on pump until the next day. Uh, They had tried to wean her once, but her EF was quite poor. But when they weaned her the next day, it went without problem. On day two, she was weaned from ventilator support. On day three, she was extubated. And on day six, she went from the ICU to the ward. It's amazing. Wow. Truly amazing. I think it's just incredible. And you mentioned this earlier, but this is really about meaning for everyone in healthcare. And, and this is what we we seek to do in emergency medicine, to be there, to be this chain of survival. And making this process better is essential. Yeah, it, these cases generally are big wins, right? They're young, healthy people oftentimes. Well, it's 50-50 if you look at the hypothermia literature. Half the people are, you know, exciting mountain people out, out practicing their craft. And the other half are often drug and alcohol who end up exposed outside. But regardless, both of them tend to do very well. And the literature, unlike drowning, the literature has very few people brought back into a persistent vegetative state, which is one of the things that everybody was worried about when we start, first started these kind of protocols. But yeah, as long as you're not 
trying to pick out the hypothermic cardiac arrest from drowning, you have very little chance. Essentially, these patients either get ROSC and, and do well, or they usually don't get ROSC. There's not a lot of downside. The challenge, of course, is selecting the right patients because these resources are important and expensive and needed for cabbage and all sorts of other uh, demands that there are on the ECLS programs. Um, and so you need to, to not use them indiscriminately. And especially you don't want to have people transporting, you know, for three, four or five hours and all the risks associated with that of doing CPR and during transport if they're, they don't have a real chance of survival. And so one of the, the really important things that I always try and talk to people about is trying to understand how to pick the patients who have a chance for a good outcome. Along those lines, I was hoping we could go through an example case and you could tell me how you might work with someone over the phone to, to seek that story out. So to get inside the mentality, we're at a, a small emergency department, essentially a freestanding emergency department, and we'll say we're about two hours from, uh, from an ECMO center. And we get a call as the local medical control that there's a 45-year-old homeless gentleman who is found pulseless in a snow embankment. There's no visible trauma, and EMS has been on scene for about 15 minutes and started CPR. They have identified a PEA arrest and are looking for guidance at this point. Do they terminate resuscitation? They've gone through ACLS a couple of times. Do they transport to you? How does that conversation go at this point? Really quick, this sounds like a very favorable case. PEA in some circumstances can be considered signs of life, especially in a hypothermic cardiac arrest. So that's nice to know that uh, potentially you have a much lower probability of this person having been anoxic for a long period of time. Um, when it comes to prognostication, really it's all about story. When it, when, uh, and it sounds funny, it sounds like you're back in medical school, but really history is the most important thing. And so you want to do two things. You want to probe for any signs or story or history of death before cooling, right? And so you're looking, did this person have a traumatic event? Did they have a, um, a witnessed overdose uh, or something else that caused their heart to stop before they got cold? But in this case, we don't have any history to suggest that. The other thing I'm trying to say is that the patient had access to oxygen during their cooling period. And so that's where the drowning stuff gets really complicated. Um, in the homeless situation, in a snowbank, it, it might be difficult. Um, when you're looking at like drownings and things like that, what you're looking for is a story of like the person clinging to an object and breathing air for a long period of time, or being in a life jacket and cooling, cooling, cooling before they then kind of slump forward and, and face down in the water kind of thing. And what we're getting at with that means it, um, they cooled in the body of water, but were breathing oxygen while they cooled. Is that correct? Yeah. So with drowning, I, I tend to divide it into submersion drowning and immersion drowning. And submersion drowning is kind of what you usually think of. A person falls into water. They very quickly go under the water. They have a hypoxic cardiac arrest. And then depending on the temperature of the water and when they're pulled out, they're going to be cold when they come out. And with the, very except, with the exception of very young children, 
those patients are, that's universally fatal. My approach to those patients is 30 minutes, well, 15 to 30 minutes of great ACLS on scene and then terminate on scene uh, if you have the ability to do that within your system. Don't do it for kids. Kids are a different story. Get other people involved. Think about transporting. Think about ECLS in any cold water child drowning, even if you think it's submersion drowning. But for adults, if it's submersion and you don't get ROSC with good ACLS, then I'm very comfortable um, supporting people in the decision to stop resuscitation. Immersion drowning is the needle in the haystack when it comes to accidental hypothermia. And there you're looking for a story of the person being immersed in water, but being able to breathe air during the time that they are cooling. And then they're breathing air, they're getting colder, they're getting colder, they're still breathing air. And then they get cold enough that they have a hypothermic cardiac arrest. And then often they might either slide into the water if they were hanging on to a boat or an object, uh, or they might then go face down if they were wearing a life jacket or something similar. And so those are very rare, as you can imagine. Um, but those are your potential hypothermic cardiac arrest that might benefit from prolonged resuscitation and transport to an ECLS center. Listening to that, I can't help but think of Leonardo DiCaprio. I was just going to say it. <laughs> I was just going to say it. <laughs> In Titanic. Do you know what we're talking about, Doug? I haven't seen Titanic, unfortunately, oh my. but uh, okay. I've, I've heard other people say the same thing. Um, the other scenario that we occasionally get survivors for is uh, from is a uh, car into water, right? Mm. And so yeah. with, the, with the car going into water and then I, I'm no expert in auto extrication and different cars and what happens, but it, there have been a few cases where people, presumably they have a, a, a large size air pocket in these cars that slowly fills up. And so there have been cases where you take people out of a, a car immersion or a car, yeah, out of a car that's underwater uh, they're in arrest, they're cold, uh, and they get resuscitated, and there have been survivals from that. So that's another sort of special case of drowning that you want to think a bit carefully about. That's good to know. I would have thought being in a car that goes under would be a really bad prognostic factor. It Certainly, it's not a good day, but I'm hearing that there's maybe some more optimism than I had in my head. Yeah, and hopefully people get out sooner. Um, but yeah, especially very cold water, car slowing, slowly filling up, getting to breathe air for a while. It, it's, it's got some of the elements that maybe will work out in your favor. But um, no, you've presented a case that, that sounds very likely to be hypothermic cardiac arrest. And then you've given the other sort of nice bit of prognostication that there's still PEA, although you really don't need that PEA, but it, it, it is reassuring uh, if you're like nervous about triggering a long transport and trying to get your ECLS team on board with, with managing this patient. So to clarify, because this is already changing my paradigm a little bit, I think of PEA as a poor prognostic rhythm. And, you know, I'm thinking about high energy rhythms like VF and VT as that's a good thing to me. And, but you're saying PEA is a sign of life in this circumstance. And and what if it were asystole? Would would you still consider transporting this patient? Yeah. So provided you have a story of hypothermic cardiac arrest, 
the rhythm is not that helpful to prognosticate. If you have somebody who has witnessed loss of vital signs, that is probably your best prognosticator to know that this is a hypothermic cardiac arrest, right? If you, if you had somebody on scene that saw the patient, they had some agonal breathing, and then, you know, they get moved or jostled or whatever, or just spontaneously go into cardiac arrest because their cold myocardium is so irritable. That is, that's like your golden ticket, right? You're like, this person is cold, had a witness cardiac arrest and had no downtime before good CPR. Like this brain can handle a ton of, you know, CPR plus or minus, you know, some poor CPR during transport and things like that. And if we can rewarm them on ECLS, you know, this person has a great, great chance. If instead it's PEA, it's a little bit not as good, but it, it really, all PEA is not the same, right? If you're getting PEA from a, from a BLS paramedic who is basically using a, like a, not a monitor, but a, a defibrillator, and it's saying no shock advised, you really don't know whether that's no shock advised because it's asystole or because there's actually PEA underneath and the device won't shock, right? Oftentimes, depending on who the provider is, it can be very, especially if you have an organized PEA that looks, looks compatible with a severely hypothermic heart, that could be that that myocardium, like in the absence of you getting an ultrasound out, that could be that that myocardium is actually still contracting. It's just not providing any kind of forward flow that you can detect as a pulse, right? Yeah, pseudo-PEA type picture. Interesting. Exactly. Um, but all of those things sort of tell you that, because I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but once you get down to like 28 degrees and below, your ability to tolerate poor perfusion of your brain is incredible, right? So at 28 degrees Celsius, you need about half the normal cardiac output to keep your brain alive. And what's cool about CPR is it provides about half the normal cardiac output. So in theory, if you had no downtime and good protoplasm, you know, if you, if you had a 28 degrees Celsius witnessed cardiac arrest with immediate CPR, we don't know what the upper limit of survival is if you were to rewarm them on ECLS. When you hit 24, now you're getting into this sort of, and especially at 20, you're getting into this deep hypothermic cardiac arrest territory where in young kids for cardiac surgery, they'll do like stand cardiac standstill for 20 minutes without putting them on pump if it's going to be a quick repair, right? And so the colder you get, the more tolerance you have for poor perfusion or no perfusion. And so if you've got a hypothermic cardiac arrest patient in asystole who's 24 degrees, one of the challenges is, is you don't know whether that person arrested 20 minutes ago, in which case, game on, probably if you just did good CPR and got them on ECLS, they're going to have a great outcome. Or if they arrested two hours ago, right, in which case, ooh, a little bit dodgy. And if they arrested five hours ago and had five hours of no flow at 20 or 24 degrees, probably that's not going to go well. But but you, re you, you really don't know. And there is a significant number of people in the literature who've been successfully resuscitated from asystole. So it's not the sort of thing that you can use to stop. And really what you need to decide is, is this a history of hypothermic cardiac arrest or not? And if it's a history of hypothermic cardiac arrest, the things that can get you out of having to sort of roll out the red carpet and do everything 
if you can measure a good potassium uh, and it's over 12, you would be a world record setter. And really, if your temperature is above 32, you can also be pretty confident it's not a hypothermic cardiac arrest. So those are your two kind of get out of jail free cards if you don't have story. But if you do have story and you're convinced it's a hypothermic cardiac arrest, it's very reasonable to, to do high quality CPR, move them to an ECLS center. They'll only need to be on pump for you know somewhere between four and six hours to slowly rewarm them. Some people rewarm them even faster. And if you don't get ROSC, then, then that patient you know, has used six hours of pump time, but isn't, isn't going to use a lot of other resources. And then, yeah, if you do get ROSC, then there's a really good chance that their brain is well enough preserved that they're going to do really well. Doug, can I ask a procedural question? Sure. So I, I have heard a lot about potassium and its prognostic value. Can you talk about where this potassium needs to come from? Is it from a central blood draw or what about a peripheral potassium that's really elevated? Yeah, great question. The literature on potassium is a little bit tricky, but it is a good example of why you need to be very careful in life and in medicine about making very important decisions off a single lab value. So there is a, what I consider a very good case report of a potassium of 9.8 who goes on to survive. The, why, the reason I say that is you look at all the following values and they're um, kind of slowly decreasing as this person went through their resuscitation journey and then went on pump versus the world record holder is a potassium of 11.9 and 20 minutes later, I can't remember if they were on pump 20 minutes. Anyways, 20 minutes later, their potassium was like, I think six and change. And to me, that first potassium was hemolyzed or there was some sort of lab error processing it. And therefore you always need to be very careful about making life and death decisions based on a single lab value. And so I don't think there's a good answer to your question. Central versus peripheral. I uh, I don't know of any data. I'm sure there's data out there in normothermic people. I'm not so sure about in hypothermic people mm-hmm. on how those numbers might differ. Really, for me, where potassium comes in is in a unknown story. So I, I'm really not interested in the potassium if I have a good story of hypothermic cardiac arrest or if I have a good story of death before cooling. If I have either of those, I'm very not interested in, in what the potassium is. I'm more interested in, in like just moving forward. If instead the story is quite uncertain, and particularly if I'm looking at a longer transport and things like that, then that's where um, the potassium might help me. But unfortunately, you know, if, especially if you go look at the drowning literature and things like that, there's lots of people with normal potassiums who don't survive, right? So it, mm-hmm. it's, um, in our case, it can be helpful if it's very elevated to help us get comfortable that there was death before cooling. But the reverse, unfortunately, is not that helpful. In terms of considering the potassium in the context of other things, I believe you develop a scoring tool around that, the ICED score, and then similarly, there's a HOPE score. And how do you compare these two and, and how do you approach this question? Great question. Yeah, so as you said, there's two scores. The HOPE score has been derived and then validated 
And the ICE score, uh, which was done by a number of us out of um, Vancouver and Kelowna, has been derived but not validated. Uh, of course, there's a tiny bit more to the story than that because our derivation has more patients in it than the combination of their derivation and validation. Uh, and of course, I am a little bit um, biased or more than a little bit biased to the ICE score instead of the HOPE score. <laughs> I like your name better. Your name would jump to my mind in the moment. So uh, I'd get there faster. Thank you. Well, the, the HOPE score was done by a number of Europeans, who uh, many of whom are friends of mine. And they have done a much better job of uh, both promoting their score and incorporating it into um, decision-making tools and uh, algorithms and stuff. So unfortunately, I think my our ICE score might might be um, relegated to the history books, but ours is easier to use. So to calculate the ICE score, you need to know the gender of the patient, whether or not they suffered asphyxia, and what the serum potassium is. And then you basically just plug it into a, a little graph and it gives you a number. For the HOPE score, you need age, gender, the temperature, uh, asphyxia, um, CPR duration, and the serum potassium. And just by understanding the difference between those two scores, you'll see the crux of our sort of argument between the two author sets. And we use some different uh, statistical methods. And I am personally convinced, both from my review of the literature and from the statistics, that in a well-selected patient, the duration of CPR does not predict survival. Um, and similarly, in a well-selected patient, the temperature does not predict survival. Um, but the HOPE authors did a different um, method of dealing with confounders than the ICE authors did. And I would, if you wanted to know the details of that, you'd need to get my statistician uh, on the podcast and he would be happy to explain it to you. But certainly the, the findings as published in ICE uh, really reflect sort of my understanding of the literature and my experience of reading all the literature prior to doing the New England paper. So those are your two scores. And then the real, the real trick with these scores is not using them when you don't have to. It, much like the D-dimer, right? If you order these on the wrong patients, you're, you're doomed. I really like that perspective because I think similar to your discussion about the potassium, I don't think that I am at the point where I would say, I don't need the potassium. I know I want to move forward from the story. And so that's that's really enlightening to say, hey, this is a great story for this. I'm not going to be dissuaded by a value that could be hemolyzed and I might you know, call the patient right there. And so I, I really appreciate the idea of using both of these scores in the context of patient that, that I'm going to apply the decision rule because of uncertainty. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly the way to think about it. it it's for the patients where you really aren't sure and you're, you really don't have the clinical history to be able to, to tease out what to do, using one of these scoring systems can be very helpful. The other place it can potentially be helpful is if you have a patient that you are wanting to advocate for and you are getting pushback from an ECLS provider who is not familiar with the excellent potential for a good outcome on hypothermia. Hmm. Um, because, you know, you tell a story to a 
busy cardiac surgeon who wants to start his next elective case about a 28-year-old person who you've been doing CPR on for two and a half hours that has a temperature of 25 degrees uh, and a pH of 707. And they're going to they're going to be like, don't waste my time. Like this case isn't for me. And if you face that kind of scenario and you can pull out an ice score for that person mm -hmm. and say that based on a, a published scoring system, this patient has a per predicted survival of 50%. That is all of a sudden going to be much harder for the cardiac surgeon to argue with. If for some reason, they're not somebody who's familiar with that's the, huge the hypothermia um, sort of special case. Right. That's super helpful. I like the way you're framing this, Doug. So it's all about the story. And in particular, we're trying to ascertain two different things. Was there death that occurred before cooling? And was the body continuing to get oxygen through the process of cooling and death? Yeah. And your your ideal scenario is witness loss of, con like witnessed witnessed arrest, right? Either before cooling or after cooling, right? Like if you have a story of I was clutching my chest and having terrible chest pain and then I fell in the snowbank, right? Pretty much you're done mm -hmm. if the ACLS isn't isn't working. And then in an ideal world like our case in Squamish, instead somebody finds somebody in a snowbank, they they notice that there's some signs of life and then they do something to them and they see the loss of uh, vital signs. Those are those are your perfect cases either to stop or to go um but obviously life's messy and there's a lot of in between and you're trying to you're trying to search for clues to help you put them in one camp or the other because that's really you know if, if you truly can't put them in one of those camps then the scoring systems or just looking at the potassium um if you can't can't manage the scoring systems um might be helpful but ideally, you're, you're going to put them in one of those camps based on the story. So for our hypothermic gentlemen uh, on this medical control call, are you advising that they come to our small ED and get a potassium and we start to rewarm them? Or are we calling this resuscitation in the field or transporting to a, a bigger hospital? Yeah, so great question. Um, so the case you've described to me is very likely to be a hypothermic cardiac arrest. And so that patient, in my mind, would benefit from high quality CPR and uh, transport to an ECLS center uh, and maintaining the core temperature during that transport. So I don't want you to rewarm them and I don't want you to let them cool uh, mm. further. Um, and so depending on how long your transport is, if you're looking at relatively short transports, like half hour, one hour, they could probably do all their usual stuff, you know, their bear huggers, warm blankets, hot packs, whatever, while they're doing CPR. And they'll probably barely maintain or they might lose a degree or two during that time. If instead you're looking at a three or a four hour transport and you've got a really dialed like helicopter rescue crew, then they're probably going to have to put it in an esophageal probe and they're probably going to have to titrate their heat delivery to just maintain their core temperature. Because of course, I didn't write the guideline that way. And I had a team that had a long transport from the interior of BC that by the time they rolled into the ECLS center, they'd 
kind of gotten us out of that protective window. I think they'd gone from 26 to 29 degrees Celsius or maybe even to 30. And so I didn't expect that because all of the pre-hospital care literature that we'd reviewed basically showed that, you know, your best rewarming is going to do no better than just maintaining core temperature. But of course, um, yeah, that was wrong. <laughs> There's always overachievers out there. Yeah. So to answer your question, which I'm dancing around, should your should that crew come to you in your small center or should they go to the ECLS center? Um, I think that depends on that crew's ability to provide high quality CPR. Certainly from a timing point of view, the best thing they can, they can do is avoid the small shop, right? Because a stop at a small shop with a patient in cardiac arrest, there's no way it's going to take less than a half hour, 40 minutes, an hour. And that's all just wasted time, I think, assuming we're, we have the diagnosis correct. But if, you, if they don't have, um, I don't know, mechanical CPR and you have mechanical CPR, or if they could come to you and then helicopter to the ECLS center, or like everybody's logistics are going to be different, but the principles are the same. Make a decision based on the clinical history, provide high quality CPR, maintain the core temperature and get the ECLS team on board and ready to receive the patient. Thank you for clarifying those steps because it is something that, that we face in Minnesota and uh, struggle to figure out what the right next step is. Another thing that uh, I know I personally have struggled with is while we're warming up the ECLS process, sort of, so to speak, or uh, if there's some debate about that, what steps do we take in the interim? And in textbooks, we talk about two chest tube systems, you know, a, a warm Foley lavage, things like that, uh, peritoneal lavage. Um, what is your take on on these other strategies? Do they do they have merit? And if I'm at one of these small centers and and this is all I have, should I be taking those steps or are they not so useful? Great question. So it depends. If your destination is ECLS, and from my point of view, if you can get there, so if you can get a patient who's gone into hypothermic cardiac arrest to ECLS in less than six hours, then you should do that because that's got the best evidence that you can provide good care and they have a good chance of a good outcome. If your scenario is that you cannot uh, transport this patient to ECLS for whatever reason. Now, I think it's a very interesting opportunity for us to do things in a clever way that potentially could have very good effect, like good outcomes for a large cohort of patients worldwide. But we have no literature to support the ideas that I will share with you. So, talking physiology for a moment. The colder your brain is, the less oxygen it needs to survive. At 28, you need about half the normal oxygen to survive. CPR provides about half the normal cardiac output. So at 28 degrees with good CPR and minimal downtime up front, you potentially have a lot of room to maneuver for these patients. The heart, so that's the brain. The heart, on the other hand, as it gets colder and colder and colder, it gets more irritable. If it hasn't gone into cardiac arrest already, it's more likely to develop a malignant arrhythmia and go into cardiac arrest. Even if it has some sort of organized rhythm, as it gets colder and colder, the cardiac output goes down and down. 
And basically the, the brain from a survival point of view loves the cold and the heart hates it. And it, once you switch to hypothermic cardiac arrest below 28 degrees, CPR kind of gets you off the hook. But that period above 28 is a really, is really a problem for these patients who are going to warm without ECLS. So getting this person from below 28 with high quality CPR to a temperature where you can get their heart started and functioning um, as quickly as possible to meet the metabolic needs of the brain is really the crux. And I have a number of ideas about how we can do that efficiently. And I I'm hopeful that if we were to start doing that with all the patients who can't reach ECLS, that we might start to get survivals that maybe would maybe not rival the ECLS survivals, but might come close. And so, yeah, so the Doug Brown fantasy of what you do with these patients is you, you don't warm the head. So basically, you know, wrap some blankets and a toque or something around the head because the only way I want the head to warm is from oxygen, oxygenated blood coming up from the, perif from the, mm. from the heart. Uh, so I, I want you to avoid warming their head. Okay. So insulate their head from your room, like, cause your room's warm, you know, your blankets are warm, your bear huggers are warm. So I, I want the head to stay cold until it's getting warm blood. Um, I want very high quality CPR. So as you're selecting any of your rewarming modalities, you need to decide for each rewarming modality, is this going to mess up my high quality CPR? Hmm. And then, so my first principle, keep the head cold. My second principle, keep the blood flowing. So high quality CPR. And then my third principle is get from 28 to 33, because 33 is you've got a really good chance of ROSC at 33 and certainly 34, you got a better chance of ROSC 35. You got a great chance of ROSC. In fact, if you're at 35 or 36 and you're not getting ROSC, then probably you can stop and you're not going to get ROSC assuming you've, you know, been doing high quality CPR and um, you've optimized everything else. Okay. So how are we going to get from 28 to 32 as quickly as we can without impacting the quality of our CPR. I'm not going to do chest tubes. Okay. Because when chest tubes go like badly and the lavage goes badly, you start getting the water infiltrating the chest wall and it turns into this Michelin man and the CPR quality goes down. So I'm going to avoid chest tubes. Um, I'm definitely going to deliver as much heat as I can. So in my shop, I've got a, one of these electric or hot water circulating warming blankets that goes under the patient. Then I've got two bear huggers. So basically just, you know, regular OR bear huggers, but I'm, I'm using two of them, avoiding the head, doing the torso and the legs. And then if I had a surgeon um, who was good, and ideally they've got a laparoscope or they're just good at doing peritoneal lavage. Oh, sorry, I would definitely do bladder lavage. And then if I had a surgeon who was good at setting up peritoneal lavage, I would do peritoneal lavage as well. Um, I don't consider peritoneal lavage to be in my skill set, and I'm a procedure junkie emerge guy. But yeah, peritoneal lavage, I think, is out of my skill set. 
so yeah, so for me, no chest tubes, two bear huggers, bladder lavage, great CPR, wrap some towels and toques around the head and every degree or so of rewarming, I'm going to try again with the electricity. Um, so uh, I'm not going to shock my V or, or if I have a rhythm change, right? So let's back up for one second. If I'm going to ECLS, I'm not going to like, I'll, I'll try and shock VTAC a couple times. Um, but then mostly I'm just going to ignore it, do high quality CPR and um, maintain core temperature. Um, but if I'm stuck rewarming in my shop, every time I see a rhythm change or every time I get a degree or so of rewarming, I'm going to, I'm going to try again briefly with my electricity. And in terms of ACLS drugs, I would say minimal, um, you know, every, every two or four degrees, maybe I would try a bit of epi. If somebody managed to send some lab work that was, you know, showing pHs in below seven, maybe I would give some bicarb once in a while, but I don't think any of those things are going to help. I think the, the strategy really is insulate the head, high quality CPR, bladder lavage, two bear huggers, some sort of heat delivery blanket under the patient, and then electricity with every rhythm change or every degree or so of rewarming and try and get ROSC as early as I can if I can't go to ECLS. I've read about this. My understanding is uh, a lot of the ACLS meds aren't effective below this temperature, and so we're going to be just loading up with epi, and then at a certain temperature, they'll work and they'll get a huge whopping dose of epi, which probably wouldn't be helpful. Is that kind of the, the process we're discussing? The answer is I don't know. If you look at the AHA guidelines versus the um, ILCOR guidelines, they each quote different animal studies. And in one animal study, they showed that the medications were effective. And in a different study, they showed that they were harmful. Um, so I really don't know. And I, I, I would love to look into it, but I, I don't know what happens to the metabolism of, these, of those medications, epi in particular, if it's too cold does the epi go away or does it sit around until it's warm enough and then acts with, with the vengeance? I really don't know. I, my general rule of thumb is for the first 15 or 20 minutes of uh, resuscitation until you've decided for certain that this is hypothermic cardiac arrest is to just do everything like you normally would. Give your medications like you would, use your electricity like you would. And then after 15 minutes, if none of that has worked, and you have made the decision that this is a hypothermic cardiac arrest, then I would stop with electricity and with meds. If I'm going to ECLS, then I would just do high quality CPR and try and prevent the temperature from changing and not recheck the rhythm, not reshock VT, not give more epi, because I'm going to a treatment that I have a tremendous amount of faith in is going to uh, work for this patient. And if instead I'm in the camp where I have to rewarm locally, I, I really have no evidence to guide you. But my personal opinion would be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pull out any of the uh, ACLS medications until probably 30 degrees. And I would try some at 30, I would try some at 32, and I would try some at 34. I would be more generous with my electricity, every rhythm change or 
every degree, I would I would try again with the electricity. Something that's really prompted me to think a lot about my first moments in a resuscitation in a high, accidental hypothermia patient is what you've described. So if if ECLS is an option, and if they've committed to doing this procedure, our wonderful ECMO team, should I be working to rewarm the patient at all? In other words, uh, you said while they're transporting the patient, we should maintain this core temperature and not try and uh, aggressively rewarm them. And when they hit my trauma bay, I want to do something. I want to help. And usually that helpful thing I'm trying to do is uh, give some warm saline, get some warm blankets on the patient, bear huggers, all these types of things to try and warm the patient up and uh, with my good intentions. But if ECLS is really an option, should I say, everybody stop, we're not rewarming this patient, let's continue CPR and oxygenation uh, with our endotracheal tube, and let's prep the groin. Is, is that kind of what you do when, when ECLS is ready to go? Yeah, 100%. All, wow. all you need to do is high-quality CPR and rapid transit to ECLS. Those are your two priorities. Well, and then ideally maintain the core temperature. The reason for the core temperature recommendation is the colder you get, the more organs, the more organ dysfunction you're going to get. So you don't want to take your 27 degree patient and deliver them at 19, right? Because mm-hmm. their <laughs> things are going to get worse. But you really don't want to take your 27 degree patient and deliver them at 32 degrees to ECLS, right? Because you will have decreased their neuroprotection. So, yeah, high quality CPR maintain core temperature and transport as quickly as you can is really all you want to do. You don't want to be giving boluses of warm saline. You don't want to be giving, delivering a lot of heat. You might need to deliver a little bit of heat to prevent further heat loss, but um, yeah. That's amazing. I think that would be very, very difficult to stand by and watch. Which is the reason, I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, That's the exact reason probably they should avoid your shop, right? They should just transport directly to the ECLS center. Um, Well, our our shop is the ECLS center. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm even thinking in my trauma bay, because, you know, it takes, uh, you know, 20 minutes to get all this going. And I'm trying to think, you know, it would be really hard for me to, in those 20 minutes, not say we're going to give a ton of warm saline. We're going to give one liter, which in reality is ends up being like five as we're yeah. it just the fluids keep going and and suddenly there's other invasive things that are occurring as well to aggressively rewarm the patient, which is the everyone's best intentions. But it sounds like if if we can really commit to that strategy, keeping them below 28 while not actively cooling them is probably in their best interest. And just think about our clinical team and how difficult it will be for them to see us not rewarming this patient when they may not have thought about it in this level of depth. Doug, could you take me through how you might explain it to them if you happen to be walking by our resuscitation room when this is happening? So currently this patient is cold and that cold is protecting their brain in particular from dying while they're having CPR. ECLS is going to continue this perfusion and rewarm them effectively and essentially support their brain and their organs immediately once they're on pump. If you 
In the meantime, while CPR is ongoing, are successful in rewarming this patient before they go on to ECLS, their brain is going to start to die. I hope I don't have to use that, but I can absolutely imagine myself using that same description that you just gave. I think it will be very necessary for our teams, even in an ECLS center. I think, you know, I this talk has given me a lot of hope and, and also a lot more focus on some things a uh, very specific history that's going to push me in a different direction. But some cases don't work out the way we want them to. So I want to talk about it. When do you draw the line? We talked about a potassium of 12. What are the other factors that the patient's now in your ED and you say, we, we've given this patient everything we could? So for me, ideally, if I can get involved while the patient is still in the field, by phone support or something, to me, that's ideal. Because the earlier you decide on these cases, the easier it is to make a decision and stick with the decision, right? Yeah, if I can be involved in a telephone support way, probably most of the time, the best thing I can do is give people the confidence to terminate resuscitation in the field, right? If, if there's a convincing story of alternate cause of death and then the patient got cold and they've done a good, you know, round of ACLS care and haven't got ROSC and there's not a strong story for some other, you know, potentially reversible cause, then hopefully we can save everybody a lot of difficulty and terminate these patients in the field. If instead they're just landing in my department, I'm again you know, while, you know, obviously anybody who lands in your department in cardiac arrest, that it's a bit of a, there's a lot going on to start with. And so, you know, take the story, make sure the high quality uh, ACLS care is going on while you're sorting it out. And then, yeah, see if you can, can convince yourself that this is not a hypothermic cardiac arrest. And if you're convinced it's not a hypothermic cardiac arrest, then there's a good chance you'll be able to just stop assuming that there's nothing that prevents you from doing so. Things that would prevent me from stopping in a cold patient, you know, would be even in the absence of story would be I'm seeing VF or PEA or some sort of rhythm, right? To me that, you know, in somebody who's 28 or colder, that's a, a sign to me that this person wasn't that wasn't that dead. <laughs> if I really can't have story, then I would score them, right? So if they're in my department, I would get some labs uh, and then I would score them. But hopefully I'm either going to be convinced that they're a hypothermic cardiac arrest, in which case I'm mostly going to focus. I'll still, I'll still get some labs, but I'm mostly going to be focused on, uh, on getting high quality CPR and getting them to ECLS. And if I I'm convinced it's not hypothermic cardiac arrest. I'm going to be changing gears to running my regular termination of resuscitation algorithm. When this patient hits your doors, uh, there's kind of a common saying, there's no such thing as cold and dead. Does the patient have to be a certain temperature before you end the resuscitation when there's uncertainty about the story? To me, that saying really applies to patients who have a reasonable chance of having had a hypothermic cardiac arrest, right? And so if they, and we've already talked about it, but if they have a hypothermic cardiac arrest, ideally I'm going to go to ECLS. And if I'm not going to go to ECLS, then I'm going to warm to 
above 32, ideally 34, depending on how hard it is and how awful the case may or may not be. 32 or 34 would be the the number I would pick before I would stop. But yeah, no, if, if, if they are truly in, uh, I think they're a hypothermic cardiac arrest, then ideally I'm going to go to ECLS. And if I can't get to ECLS in under six hours, then we're going to do the stuff we talked about before. We're going to insulate the head. We're going to do high quality CPR and we're going to try and get from 28 to 32 as fast as we can. And I'm going to try and get that heart started. Does any of your approach change when you're talking about pediatric patients? with a known hypothermic cardiac arrest? The big change for me with pediatric patients is the drowning patients. Like any any child who goes into very cold water is going to get the whole algorithm all the way to ECLS if I can make it happen, assuming they're relatively cold, yeah. right? Like if, if the child's under 30 degrees, even if the story is is more drowning than anything else that patient needs to to go the whole way and so that's really the difference in kids this is a great moment to talk about my absolute favorite hypothermia case which is really a mass casualty case and that's the Denmark dragon is it dragon boating accident if you believe in the Denmark boating accident then you should believe that the survival from hypothermic cardiac arrest rewarmed with ECLS is somewhere between 80 and 100% because they essentially did eight kids in short order and everybody survived. That's assuming so, Alex um, and I don't rewarm them before they get to, <laughs> to ECLS. <laughs> that I'm not starting four liters of warm IV fluid while the surgeon's making their way down. Well, and this case, <clears throat> this case report is actually a great example of what happens when that happens. Because the one kid who didn't go back to grade level function was the kid who touched down in a peripheral hospital before making their way to the ECLS center. And so that kid actually was one of the early, like, so this is a case report from 2011. It's a hypothermia mass casualty scenario. It's a dragon boat with 13 teenagers and two adults, and they flipped the boat into two degrees Celsius water. One adult took off his life jacket and tried to swim to shore. He drowned. All others kept their life jacket on. The immersion times were between 80 and 170 minutes. As they pulled people out, seven of them were in cardiac arrest. Four of them were in VF, one PEA, and two in asystole. The CPR duration was between 56 and 125 minutes. They were all rewarmed. All the cardiac arrest cases were rewarmed during using ECMO in a single center right time of day, three ORs, and they used, they only ran two, two pumps at a time. They'd rewarm the kids and then bring them off pump and then bring the next kid in. They had a hundred percent survival. There's one patient with significant cognitive impairment. And that was actually the patient who I, I believe went to the peripheral center first and got a lot of the usual care that you would think about uh, an attempt at rewarming some warm saline and really a delay to ECLS. But yeah, when I when I quote people that for a well-selected patient, your survival can be up to 100%, that this wow. is the data that I use to justify that statement because, yeah, it's just incredible, right? Seven kids in cardiac arrest and they all survive. The Denmark boating accident example really is one of those inflection points for a community because if those 13 kids had died or a big portion of them had died, that community would be 
in such anguish for so long. And the fact that they were saved is so inspiring and uplifting for that community, I would imagine. And what those 13 people go on to do in their lives, who knows, right? It's amazing that one medical center was able to resuscitate all of them. Can you speak a little to that? Most tertiary care centers that do cabbage have two or three rooms, right? And so to think that any of those centers, if they were ready for it, could do that kind of care on a mass casualty basis, if they're pre-hospital, like it was essentially one uh, helicopter doing retrievals um, and just shuttling these kids to, um, to that single center. And they, it was the right time of day. So everybody was in house. They had three teams in house and everybody was just coming off pump and uh, they just switched gears. So a really, really incredible case. Thinking a little bit more detailed about the logistics of transporting so many patients in cardiac arrest, I can imagine a scenario where there isn't enough external compression devices to perform CPR during transport. Do you have any advice on what to do in those situations? Is there ever a scenario in which you would recommend transporting a patient without ongoing CPR, mainly because the distance to the ECLS center is so short or some other factors? Yeah, great question. There is a little bit of data around intermittent CPR in hypothermic cardiac arrest. And there are a couple of cases where continuous CPR was not possible, where they did intermittent CPR. And there is a case where the outcome was good. So, you know, the colder you are, the more hypoxic anoxic time you can, uh, your brain can survive. And presumably the younger you are, the better your brain is able to tolerate that as well. But in general, I think in most EMS systems, people, if they ran out of external CPR devices, people are going to just bend the rules a little bit to provide as good CPR as they can. Usually the place for intermittent CPR is in a ground search and rescue environment where you just physically can't carry a stretcher and do CPR at the same time, in which case people have different protocols, but the one that is, um, I think I need to double check the ICAR rec- current ICAR recommendations, but I think five in one is the current, uh, you know, five minutes of transport, one minute of CPR. Although I think the right thing to do is turn that one minute of CPR into like a little bit longer. So you really get good CPR, but yeah. So you can only do what you can do. And of course, rescuer safety is the number one priority. I think the lowest hanging fruit for rescuer safety is to have good termination of resuscitation in the field guidelines that are um, smart and safe. You know, ideally you're going to equip your rescuers with mechanical CPR devices for these rare cases that require prolonged transport with ongoing CPR. And then if you get into a scenario where those devices are not available or not um, compatible with the patient, then it's really going to be an individual EMS provider decision about how to manage that. Uh, one last technical question because I'm never done. So the easiest temperature probe for me to place is uh, a Foley probe, but I noticed you kept talking about esophageal probes. Do you feel that's the the real standard of care in this case? Yeah, that's really what you what you want, and you'll probably just need to call up to the unit or your OR if you're in an ECLS center. Your cardiac 
anesthetists are going to be using those and your ICU is probably going to be using them as well. So just get someone to call up and they'll send one down. They're super easy to place. We actually have a New England Journal of Medicine video on placing the esophageal probe that um, a couple of my colleagues and myself went through the process of. I want to tell you about one other case scenario that you reminded me of when you're talking about bypassing. So the one of the challenging case scenarios are these major mechanism traumas that are found later. And so the classic is winter, car, single vehicle, tumbles down a steep embankment or something, is totally smashed at the bottom, and the person has a huge mechanism. Obviously, you're super worried about trauma, but it's winter and they've been there for hours and now they're super cold as well. And this is probably the most challenging one to decide where to send this patient when you're sort of triaging them. And what often happens with these, or I don't know, I've I've encountered three of these cases already in our province, is people find the car and they're like, oh my goodness, this person is for sure dead. And then miraculously, this person is alive. And then sometime during extrication or early in transport, they go into cardiac arrest. This is a very challenging case, right? If, If the cause of their arrest is trauma and you bypass your local center to go to the ECLS center, then you've done your patient a huge disservice. But if instead this person has just suffered a hypothermic cardiac arrest with relatively minor and stable trauma injuries, if you send them to their trauma to your trauma center that's not an ECLS center, you're going to do them a tremendous disservice as well. And so this is one of the most challenging cases. Ideally, if the transport times are close, you're just going to pick the ECLS center because usually your ECLS center is also a trauma center. Especially if you have to go in different directions, these are really hard. I only have kind of a case experience of about three of these cases. But in my case experience so far, it's always hypothermia. If they survived enough hours in that wrecked car to get down to these low temperatures, 30, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25 degrees core body temperature, even though their mechanism looks huge, I don't think they likely in the small numbers of patients I've seen so far, had enough trauma to kill them. And the the case that haunts me the most is this woman who, her her mechanism was unbelievable. Her car tumbled down this 200-foot bank and then smashed into a river and was half in and half out of this icy river. She was rescued about six hours. They, They don't really know. Somewhere between four and six hours later, a highways guy rappelled down, saw this wrecked car and was just assuming she was dead. He yelled and she yelled back uh, and nobody could believe it. When she came out, like her face was smashed. She looked terrible. She arrested when like they flew her up to the highway. Originally, they weren't going to give a paramedic helicopter to take her from there because they're like, well, she's been in her car for six hours. She must be okay. Anyways, we eventually, they eventually launched the critical care helicopter for her, but 
it launched out of the non-ECLS center, even though it was kind of equidistant. It was just a, uh, like a, one of those weird where the boundaries sit. And even though the flight time was the same to VGH, the, the helicopter originated from a hospital that wasn't an ECLS center. Anyways, she, she ended up arresting on the flight back, getting ROSC once and then dying in the eMERGE of the non-ECLS center. It was really sad, but um, yeah, those, those, those are cases that um, I think are not that uncommon, uh, is, a, is a major mechanism trauma in, a, in an automobile that then sits in the snow or in a very cold environment for several hours. And my sense is if they can survive long enough to get very cold, the, the chances are if they go into cardiac arrest, it's, it's likely hypothermic but you're, it's still going to be a very difficult decision as the dispatcher if you have to bypass a trauma center to get to an ECLS trauma center. That's going to be hard. Dr. Brown, your time with us has been really, really helpful. I think we could continue talking about this, and hopefully we will over many more encounters. But let me take a moment to summarize the many things that I've heard. It really begins with the fundamental realization that cold is neuroprotective while causing cardiac instability or irritability, and that planning ahead of time to create and vet a chain of survival that is understood and appreciated with a shared vision between many layers of care professionals, including EMS, emergency care teams, critical care teams, cardiac surgery, ECMO, etc., is really, really important. And that has to be done well in advance of these cases to really have the best outcomes. Then thinking about these cases, hypothermic cardiac arrest, the story is the most important part. Look for reasons to think that death may have occurred before cooling or that hypoxia or anoxia would have occurred before cooling. Those are going to be reasons to think that this patient needs care that's different than hypothermic cardiac arrest care. But if you have a really good case that is likely to be a hypothermic cardiac arrest, don't get dissuaded by potassiums, cardiac rhythm, downtime as much as possible. Focus on trying to get them to an ECLS center with high quality CPR being the most fundamental thing that we can do to give them the best outcome. When this involves water, Try and make the distinction between submersion and immersion. Submersion meaning that water has gotten into their lungs most likely, or there might be some other reason to think of anoxia before the patient was fully cooled versus immersion is where they were cooled fully and then arrested and then went under the water. The distinction with pediatrics is that we should really think very strongly about giving them a full resuscitation as much as possible even if they may have some suboptimal characteristics of their clinical case. If you have to make the decision to discontinue hypothermic cardiac arrest care, certainly if you can get their body temperature over 32 or 34 degrees Celsius, that would really help. That saying, you're not truly dead unless you are warm and dead, applies primarily to hypothermic cardiac arrest. The other number that Dr. Brown threw out is a potassium of 12 as Thus far in the literature, there are no reported survivals after a potassium higher than 12, but that may change. But if you need to make a call because of some other logistical reasons or other dangers or other factors being balanced, that might be a number to weigh in. 
there are two scoring systems we talked about, the hope score and the ice score. The hope score requires some more values than the ice score and has to be on a website. The ice score is a little bit easier to, to use but is not validated in the literature. And so we'd have to weigh those two. But those can be helpful in trying to convince an ECLS provider to take action or to decide whether or not transport and other logistical operations should be undertaken for the patient. While the patient is getting to an ECLS center, if that's going to be the end goal, don't rewarm them. Don't let them cool either. Keep them at the same body temperature and focus on high quality CPR. Now, um, when the patient first arrives to your ECLS center, it may be advisable to spend the first few minutes doing a standard ACLS resuscitation with medications and electricity as we normally do. But once the decision has been made that this patient is a hypothermic cardiac arrest patient and that they will go to have ECMO, then focusing, high, focusing entirely on CPR is going to be the important thing. If you're going to resuscitate them without ECMO, then wrap the head of the patient so that the head warms primarily from blood coming from within and not external rewarming and then keep the blood flowing using high quality cpr use warming blankets under the patient two bear huggers if possible um, dr brown talked about having peritoneal lavage bladder lavage and being thoughtful about chest tubes and thoracic lavage as that might make the cpr less effective when thinking about the specifics of an acls resuscitation Consider Dr. Brown's method of trying electricity every time there's a degree of rewarming change or if the rhythm changes. Also, thinking about epinephrine or bicarbonate for every two to four degrees that's changed rather than using a certain amount of time because then it may not be as effective and there's the potential for harm after the patient regains more circulation. Again, remember that some of these cases can be really challenging, especially if you're not sure if there is significant trauma involved as well as the hypothermic cardiac arrest and you do not have a shop that does both at the same distance or time from the patient. If you have to make a decision about where to go first, it's a really challenging situation and you have to do it on a case-by-case -case basis. Dr. Brown, thank you so much. You really are inspiring. What you've done to uplift the care of patients in Vancouver is nothing short of remarkable. Do you have any final words for us today? No, thank you guys. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure. Your questions are fantastic. I, I don't know when I'm going to be in Minnesota, <laughs> but I, I look forward to the, or better question is when are you guys going to come uh, up to Vancouver to the West Coast? And uh, we would love to host you and uh, get you out and show you around. That'd be really fun. That'd Let's be do really both fun. Ways. I think we should host you here. Yes. And we'd love to be hosted up there as well. So. <laughs> what a pleasure to meet you on here. And truly, I, I meant what I said at the beginning. I was, I, we'd had a bad case and I was re trying to find people and I cold email, you probably don't remember this, uh, but I, uh, I, I just said, this person knows everything. And you sent me all these extra papers and then you sent me paramedic guidelines that you developed and and we're we're working through all of these things in our system and it's uh i think when i reflect on on the case that has in many ways continued through our conversation as a, a resident you you developed a network of people who you 
uh, convinced based on the evidence, but we're believers in, in kind of a, a change in a significant change in practice. And that was everyone from paramedics to intensivists to a, a cardiac surgeon, which is pretty incredible. And, uh, and I think you've definitely made us uh, believers as well and wanting to make our system better. So thank you for all you do in this. Oh, fantastic. You guys. Yeah. Work on that chain of survival. And one day the right case just lands in your lap and everybody, it's just such an uplifting uh, care experience for everybody. So do the hard work, do the administrative slogging to get people ready for it. And then one day it'll, it'll all really be worth it. So thanks for all you do. Listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us to the end. Hopefully you found that incredibly helpful. I know I did. Don't forget to like, comment, follow us on any of your podcasting platforms and come back as we're going to have more great content later this month and in following months. We really appreciate all of you giving us your time and those of you going to the scientific assembly at ASAP. Have a great time. Be safe. And everyone else, I hope you have a wonderful Halloween and October. Until next time. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.